Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. We've got uh, just 11 verses, so I think that we can all, um, I think we can read, that, read it together without taking up too much time. <clears throat> so Ephesians uh, 5 and verse 22, and we'll, we'll read uh, down through 33. So uh, let's go. Wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is his, its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's a... Uh, uh, say a short prayer. Husband, head of the church, lead us today by your word. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> now, this is a popular text. A lot of books have been written on it. And a lot of things have been said about this text. A lot of arguments have been made uh, around, this, uh, around this text. But I think when we approach this text, it's important to, to note two things. At least in my mind, there's probably a billion things to note. But two things in my mind to make sure we don't overemphasize that one aspect of the text, that marital aspect of the text that everybody talks about to the detriment of the larger point that Paul is making. And to see that larger point, we need to look back at verse 21 to see that Paul mentions the idea of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the verses that follow from Verse 22, 5 and 22, all the way to 6 and 9, serve to illustrate what he means by this submitting to one another, or what we're going to call mutual submission, out of reverence for, for Christ. And, and now, I've just got 22 through 33, so I'm just dealing with this first illustration, and I don't want to steal Dale's thunder for next week's sermon but, but what I want to get at first is that we ought to see this passage of Scripture in light of verse 21. Verse 21 
says, and you heard it last week, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes into wives submitting to their husbands. He then goes to uh, the uh, relationship between children and parents. Children, obey your parents. And then he goes into the relationship between bondservants and masters, or probably what we would call today employees and employers. So these three are illustrating that mutual submission. The second important thing we need to note about this text to understand it rightly is the fact that Paul makes it plain that the overarching truth he is illustrating is that by the spirit-filled husband and wife relationship, it is illustrating the relationship between Christ and the church or the church and Christ. And, and here's what I think we are in danger of on both sides of the aisle, that if we try to reduce this passage to some sort of household code in either direction, we, we rob the, the beauty of what Paul is teaching here, a, a beauty and, and glory that as I studied this, uh, uh, this scripture out, I realized that I am going to fall far short of displaying here today in this sermon. But there is a beauty and glory that we miss if we isolate this to just the marital relationship. There is an illustration of mutual submission and an illustration of the relationship between Christ and the church that is seen in this passage of Scripture. And so first let's look at that mutual submission theme in this, in this passage concerning the husband-wife relationship, this first of the three illustration Paul, illustration Paul uses to deal with submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And I do need to make a note. I didn't realize when I started studying this sermon that, and I, and I thought, well, verse 21 talks about mutual submission. I didn't realize that that was a buzz phrase. Uh, I didn't realize it was a buzzword among uh, the egalitarian crowd. You know, they talk about mutual submission uh, quite a bit. But the problem is not with the term or the phrase mutual submission because that is plainly what verse 21 of chapter 5 is communicating. The, the, the the problem is the failure to define what mutual submission looks like. And this passage of Scripture defines for us in the husband and wife relationship, not just, it doesn't just say, oh, well, that's mutual submission, so chalk it up into some uh, cultural, uh, culturally isolated household code. No, it describes what mutual submission looks like in the husband and wife relationship. And so they can't have that phrase. We're keeping it. And we're, and we're letting the Bible tell us uh, how this mutual submission is, uh, is defined. <clears throat> so the way a spirit-filled wife fulfills this submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ in the mar marital relationship, the scripture says, is by submitting to her own husband. And it and it's interesting to me, something that's just stood out to me really in this text and uh, really almost everywhere in Scripture, that 
Scripture doesn't delineate specific ways a wife is to be submission, submissive. It doesn't say, uh, wives, submit to your own husbands by doing the dishes or uh, by doing every single thing he tells you to do or polishing his boots or making sure you get up before he goes to break, uh, work in the morning and, and fix breakfast. Uh, all of those things may or may not be ways, I'm not sure, but the Scripture doesn't delineate specific ways a wife is to be submissive. No list of duties or ways of occupying herself that tells a wife what it looks like to be submissive. Peter speaks of wives' submission in 1 Peter 3 in terms of a gentle and quiet spirit, not, not adorning with this with this out, being more concerned with an outward appearance than the meek and quiet spirit. And that speaks more of a, a disposition of, uh, of the heart than it does a list of things to do. The phrase that, that is used for this idea of submission, which is actually connected to verse 21, talking about the mutual submission, has to do with arranging or placing under. So it speaks of the way God arranged things. And that's why Paul refers to the husband as the head or the leader uh, in the home to say it another way. So what I'm getting at, what I'm aiming at at is that the idea of submission for the wife is the disposition of heart and life that acknowledges God's order in the marital relationship. That is the wife's, uh, the, the wife's role of submission. It is this disposition of the heart that says God has ordained it this way, and so I'm going to submit to this way that God has ordained it. I think John Piper in his, uh, in his popular book, This Momentary Marriage, a, the, a book on marriage, gives a helpful definition of a wife's submission when he says submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. So it is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership. That's recognizing the way that God has arranged it the disposition of heart that does so, and then she uses her God-given gifts to uh, help the husband be the leader in the home that God has called him to be. So wives are explicitly told, right, this mutual submission, how, how do I fulfill my role of mutual submission in the home, the wife asks. It's to submit to their husband, to uh, to help him in the home be the leader that God has called him to be. But remember that this passage illustrates the mutual submission Paul calls for in verse 21, which means that the husbands are called to submit to something as well. So how does the husband fulfill his call to submission in the marital relationship? Verses 25 through 29 says he does this by loving his wife, like Christ loves the church. And you want to talk about a high standard. That is, that is a high standard. Paul then uses two analogies that demonstrate how a husband serves his wife by first uh, loving, or rather by loving her. He is to first love his wife like Christ loves 
the church. And that primary emphasis, you'll remember, is on the self-sacrificial servant leadership Christ demonstrates to the church, right? He loves her by giving himself up for her. The husband submits to his role as leader, leader by laying down his life to ensure those who are under his charge are sanctified, that are washed by the water of the word, that they are presented blameless before the Lord. So like Christ, this passage of Scripture is telling us, the husband is to bathe his wife and his family if he has children in the Word of God. So they are discipled well, and so they can stand before God unashamed. This is how the husband submits to his role as a leader in the home, laying down his life, washing his family in the Word of God. Second, the text tells us that the husband is to love their wives as their own body. So love your wife like Christ loves the church and love your wife like you love your own body. And this analogy refers to the nourishing and cherishing nature of the relationship between a husband and wife. The first analogy speaks more to the spiritual nature of the husband's leadership While this analogy, loving his wife like he loves his own body, seems to me to speak to the physical nature of the relationship. The husband serves or submits to his role in the marital relationship by cherishing his wife and nourishing her the way that he would cherish and nourish his own body. And Paul makes the argument that no reasonable man would despise his own flesh And therefore, no reasonable husband should do anything but nourish and cherish his wife. Because to love his wife is to love his body. And Paul cites Genesis 2, 24. In where we at uh, in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother... And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The husband and wife are one flesh, after all. And so, love your wife as you love your body, or love your flesh, because to love your wife is to love your own flesh. So, so I think sometimes, especially us guys, we... We think of a wife submitting to us and we immediately think of Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, right? And so we we immediately like to to quote that. And that is certainly the call. But I want to ask about you, big stud, big boss man. Are, Are you bathing your family regularly? In the Word of God? Are you constantly striving as the head of your home to ensure everyone under your charge is discipled well? Do you nourish and cherish your wife like you nourish and cherish your own desires and passions? Do you spend more time loving your wife than you do pursuing your successes and hobbies? And we, we, I listen, I know that we fail in this, or at least I can speak to myself, we, uh, we fail all, uh, or to some degree or another, all of us do, 
And we all have room to grow. I mean, I don't think that anybody could answer all of the questions that I just asked in the affirmative, or at least I'm trying to make myself feel better about the fact that I can't answer any of those questions in the affirmative. We all fail. So what we need to do then is don't say, oh man, we fail. Forget this. Who can live up to this? No, get after it, right? Let's get after it. Let's set aside a time with our wives and families to worship the Lord. Set aside a time to study the Bible together, to pray together. Let's set aside and indeed sacrifice time to let our wives know that she is cherished and nourished. Because listen, fellas, I'm not diminishing the fact that Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands. But for us to fail in discipling our families well, is to be just, out of, just as out of submission as we sometimes accuse our wives of being. Amen? Ah. <laughs> Moving right along. There's, a, there's an overarching submission that is found in this passage of Scripture, though, that informs the submission of the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. And that is the submission that both husband and wife share toward Jesus. So there's a mutual submission of wife submitting to the husband and the husband submitting to his role as the servant leader in the home, serving his wife and family. But then there is also a mutual submission in the sense that both husband and wife in the spirit-filled marital relationship are submitted to Jesus Christ. Verse 22 explicitly states this when it calls the wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And and the rest of this text obviously assumes that both husbands and wives in the uh, Ephesians context and wherever else this letter would have circulated are submitted to Christ. I mean, it is essentially the motive behind following after what Paul is teaching in this passage. Paul is not saying, follow these instructions because I'm the apostle here and you're submitted to me and I think this is the best way. That's not what Paul is saying. The motive behind this is follow these instructions because you love Jesus and you want to follow him. And you want to to be like Him. You want to have a Spirit-filled home. This is the way that you live out this this new life in the Spirit. Follow Jesus. Be like Him. And I really think that this, this truth eliminates the popular idea that this was some sort of, as I've already said, culturally isolated household code that no longer applies today. This is not just calling us to one type of submission. This is calling us to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And this is the way that you are obedient to Jesus Christ. And then we'll get to that in a moment. This is what that looks like. No, there are timeless instructions here where, wherein the husband and wife demonstrate their submission to one another by demonstrating their submission to Jesus. And what is the goal of that submission? It's not, it's not a happy home. To be sure, a happy home, I think, is the result of following after these principles. But the goal is conformity to the image of Jesus. And this exalts the goal of marriage to that of conforming both husband and wife to the image of Jesus. 
The wife is made more like Jesus as she illustrates the church's submission to Christ. The husband is made more like Jesus as he demonstrates Christ's love and care for the church. This is what the spirit-filled marriage looks like. It looks like conformity to Jesus. That's what it looks like. So we just take a quick assessment of our marriage, beloved. Can you say that the goal of your marriage at this moment in time is mutual conformity to the image of Jesus Christ? Is this the primary concern of your marriage relationship? Are you more concerned with paying bills and keeping your head above water or maybe even building a little wealth? How, how about the goal of your personal relationship with your spouses, husbands to wives and wives, wives to husbands? Is, is the goal of your personal relationship to see how far you can get with them? Or is it to see how you can work together to conform each other to the image of Jesus? This is what this passage is teaching. Listen, I know, all right, I've been married. So, I, I mean, I know that we can be getting on each other's nerves sometimes. Y'all can at least say amen. No, don't. No, 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 no. <laughs> I know that. I realize that. It's difficult for two people that are raised different and have different ideas and all of that to live together. I, I get that. That's, that's difficult. But. We are called to use our roles in the marriage relationship to conform each other to the image of Jesus in the unique ways that wives and husbands can do. There is a, there is a unique way that Miranda can, can be used by the Spirit of God to conform me to the image of Christ that no other person, no other woman can do. And there are unique ways that a husband can work to conform his wife to the image of Christ that no other man or no other person in their life can do. So God has given us these unique roles so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is a spirit-filled marriage, a marriage that is conformed to, that displays the image of Jesus. And that brings me to my second point, and that is that marriage is an illustration of the relationship between Christ and the church. This is one of the main things that this passage of Scripture is teaching us is that marriage is a relationship between, is an illustration rather of the relationship between Christ and the church. And the more, listen, the more that I read this, the more that I realized that this relationship is so overlapping and intertwined, sometimes it's difficult to discern which relationship is being referenced. There's, there is so much here that, that is, I will not communicate in this, in this sermon. I almost said short sermon. I hope it's short. I mean, th th there are large books that are, that are written that are faithful expositions of this passage, but only deal with the marital aspect of this passage. Large, I mean, 300-page books, and there have been a multitude of books written right here using... Uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and they only focus on that marriage aspect. So there's no, there's no way that, that we can deal with it all. But what is clear to me is that Paul intended to com communicate through this illustration of marriage and mutual submission the relationship between Christ 
and the church. I mean, he, he just comes right out and tells us, doesn't he? In verse, 30, in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he's given us all of this, this illustration of this mutual submission, but Paul then says, this is a profound mystery, but what I am saying is that it refers to Christ and the church. And really, we see it plainly in the entire passage. The wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. There's an obvious illustration. The husband is to sacrificially love his wife like Christ loves the church. There is the obvious illustration. This means that the marriage relationship puts the glory of the gospel on display. Think of that. Our marriage, the intent of our marriage relationship is to put the glory of the gospel on display to those around us. I mean, think about this. Think about what Paul has been telling us about the relationship between Christ and the church in all of his letter to the Ephesians. A people were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and then Christ redeemed those people by his death on the cross. He then lavishes blessings on them, both in this life and in the life to come. And then, as a result, that was, that's one through three. And then, as a result, beginning in four, those people respond to him by living in a way that would please him and bring him glory for through the rest of the book of Ephesians. So here are two irreconcilable parties, God and man, who were reconciled to each other by the sacrificial love that Christ demonstrated, and it results in happy submission. A spirit-filled marriage places the glory of that truth, the truth of the gospel, on public display for all the world to see. That we were redeemed by Christ. He laid down his life for us. He gave himself up for us. He nourishes and cherishes us. He lavishes blessings on us, both in this life and in the life to come. He sanctifies us and purifies us by the work of the Spirit. And so that relationship is demonstrating his work, the truth of the gospel, to those around us. So that Spirit-filled marriage displays the glory of the gospel. So let's go back and look at just a, a couple of ways that Paul describes how that relationship does so, displays the glory of the gospel. He says it, a wife submitting to her husband illustrates the church submitting to Christ. And the analogy used to link the two is headship. The wife submits to the husband as to the Lord for, the passage says, or because the husband is the head of the wife. Christ is the head of the church, so the wife illustrates the headship of Christ to the church by submitting to her head the husband. And I believe the analogy is reciprocal. It goes both ways. Why does the church submit to Christ? Why is the church not dissatisfied with the fact that Christ has been appointed the head of the church? Do we submit to Christ out of fear or dread of what he will do to us? 
Of, co of course not. And the reason for all of this is because he is the kind of head, or rather because of the kind of head or leader Christ is. He is loving and kind. He has given his life for us. Hebrews 7.25 says he always lives to make intercession for us. He teaches us. He trains us. He sends the Holy Spirit to comfort and help us. And the list can go on. We have no problem happily submitting to him because of who he is. And what I am aiming to say here is that God has determined that the Spirit-filled marriage illustrates that reality. Illustrates a wife happily submitting to the God-ordained head of the home out of because he is kind and loving. And that's what this that's what this scripture is teaching us. Though imperfect, because we are flawed humans, our marriage should display that relationship between Christ and the church. God in his wisdom has ordained that the husband lead the home and that the wife should happily follow his lead. And, and it's, a, it's a crying shame that I need to stop right here and say what I'm about to say. It's outside of the scope of this text, but I do feel like I need to pause and say I'm not referring to instances where it's unsafe to do so. Right? Because it's a crying shame that, that that is the case even in so-called Christian homes. There are instances where the husband takes advantage of his wife. But in a spirit-filled home, there should be a clear and obvious display of the glorious relationship of a happy submission to a sacrificial, loving, godly, diligent, and faithful husband. And then a husband sacrificially loving his wife illustrates Christ's love for the church. So wives, you have a hefty, lofty calling. Husbands, you do as well. I think sometimes when we read this passage, though, the, we read the word love, and we immediately think of that romantic kind of love that first, that first comes to mind when, uh, when folks think of love nowadays. But this, I want you to see that this passage barely alludes to that kind of love. I'm not, I'm not saying that a husband shouldn't demonstrate sweet romantic love to his wife because Christ does that for us, doesn't he? He lavishes us with a multitude of undeserved gifts. I would even say that the need for us husbands to up our romantic game uh, is at least implied in verse 29 with that word cherished. And that word, I want you to listen to this now. That word actually is a medical term that applies, that means to soften by heat. And I don't want to make too much of that. I know sometimes we can get into word studies and make the text mean something that it, it doesn't mean. But I, I, think, you, I think you see the, the picture of applying heat to a muscle that is tensed up so that it can soften and relax so the muscle is more pliable, so it can be uh, stretched back to health. And so that's the picture of a, a husband cherishing their wives, those romantic times of lavishing gifts upon your wife can make her feel what? Nourished and cherished. Make her feel safe and cared for. And in turn, in turn, 
more willing and ready to follow your leadership. So, let's bring the heat, boys. <laughs> right? <laughs> Let me get back on track to say that, that the primary way this passage speaks of the way the, love, uh, the, the husband loves the wife and the way that that relationship illustrates the love of Christ for the church is providing for her spiritual well-being and her physical well-being. Verses 25 through 27 speak primarily, I think, of the spiritual well-being. And this requires self-sacrifice and a bathing in the water of the Word. Husbands, fellas, if, if we are to illustrate Christ's love for the church, we are going to have to lay aside our lives so we can ensure the spiritual well-being of our wives and families are taken care of. And the tool this text tells us that we have been given to do so is the Word of God. Bathe your wife and your home in the Word of God. And this is going to require self-sacrifice. As it relates to time, you're going to have to cut off the game for a, bit, a little bit sometimes. To study Scripture with your family or sacrifice time doing something that you uh, may feel like you enjoy uh, more so than this. But it's also going to require self-sacrifice in the arena of your own discomfort to lead and study in Scripture and praying for your family. Sometimes, fellas, the hardest thing for you to do is to stop what you're doing and go stand in the middle of your house and say, it's time for family worship, isn't it? For, for a multitude of reasons. You're, you're going to have to press past that little hesitation of pride that doesn't want to that doesn't want to get in there. Yeah, Megan's like little. I all you know what, Megan? I almost didn't say little. I really didn't because it's more than a little hesitation. Can the fellows say amen? Y'all scared to say amen? I can tell. But it really is. I mean that there's something that just like like we're like we're scared to death to go communicate to our family that it's time to worship Jesus, right? I mean, we, we, uh, we, got, we get embarrassed. Oh, I can't do that. They ain't going to listen to me. We, you know. But you're going to have to lean on the Lord for his grace when you feel like you're unworthy to lead family worship. Maybe you don't feel like it because of things you said or did that day at work. God is gracious and he offers forgiveness for the way that you acted. But he's also calling you to be the leader. In your home. Some of you might be, might be sitting there thinking, well, you must be living with me because that's the way that I feel. But the reason that I know is because I have been there. I know that feeling. And I fail regularly in this. But I'm not giving you an excuse. Because the preacher fails or because this is a regular failure doesn't mean we're excused from it. We're still called to it. Right And guys, look, we wake up early in the morning. We battle our body, our aches and pains, our aggravating co-workers, the weather, poor workplace leadership. And we press past all of that to make sure that we can bring home the bacon, right? We, we battle past that to make sure our families have a roof over our head and food on the table. So if you can battle those things and more to make sure you're 
taking care of the physical needs of your family, surely you can press past your own discomfort so that you can bathe your wife and family in the Word of God. Surely you can do that. God's called you to it. It's necessary. Now verses 28 through 30 seem to deal primarily with physical provision. No man hates his own body. Rather, he takes steps to ensure it's well-being, right? I mean, well, I need to go on a diet. I need to start working out. Or, you know, if, if your foot aches or something like that, you take some Tylenol. Or, I mean, you take care of it. You nourish it. And since the wife has become his own flesh, to nourish his wife, the Scripture says, is to nourish his body. So Paul, Paul acknowledges that this is a profound mystery. And this is, it just seems like this overlap is so intertwined. And this even provides the immediate context for Paul stating that the relationship between husband and wife served to illustrate the relationship between Christ and the church. Further, this profound one flesh union speaks something powerful about the union of a husband and wife and about the union of Christ and the church. It is a, listen, it is a covenant union. Where two become one. And what God has joined together, man may not separate. And I speak concerning the husband and wife and Christ and the church. Profound mystery indeed. Do you understand everything about this mystery? No. I, I, I don't understand. I, can't, I couldn't explain it to you. If you gave me three or four more hours, I would probably still... Well, probably after the first 45 minutes, I'd just be up here babbling. Wouldn't even know what I was talking about in the first place. But you give me enough time. I, this is such a profound mystery. It's difficult to explain. And I think that the perfect illustration is what we're about to involve ourselves in in a moment. And that is communion. Debates have raised, raged for centuries over what exactly it means for us to take the body of Christ into ourselves, the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus. What does it mean? What, what, what does it mean for it to become a part of us, for us to partake in the broken body of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Jesus Christ? Well, again, I cannot tell you everything that it means. It's, it is certainly a mysterious thing. But I will say that what I do know of the mystery, what I understand of the mystery, of this one flesh union between Christ and the church helps me to see that I need to participate in it so that my body can be nourished, so that my spirit can be nourished. And I am reminded of the way Christ has cherished me and loved me and nourished me by his body being broken and his blood being shed for me. And so we will participate in a moment. I will say before I move on, as, as we begin to move in that direction, as I, as I close this sermon, that the body broken and the blood shed, participating in these things are only for those who have trusted in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If you have not, I, I would invite you to stay and watch and see the joy and, and all of the goodness and the nourishment that comes to us because of this. 
but I would ask you to abstain. There are warnings in, in Scripture concerning partaking of the Lord's body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ in an unworthy manner. And the unworthiness is it's not have you sinned because we have all sinned and that is why we need the broken body. But it's have you trusted in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And if you have not, then we invite you to do so, but we ask you to abstain from partaking in communion until you do so. So let's close with a little application. This, this beautiful passage I recognize, exalts marriage to a very high place with lofty goals, to say the least. Right? I mean, our marriage is about displaying the glory of God by conforming us to the image of Christ and illustrating His relationship with the church. And nobody, I doubt, unless you're deluded here today, has sat there at that, it, with this text and been like, oh yeah, I got this. And I recognize that this may feel discouraging to some of us because your marriage may feel like it's a hundred miles from this. I recognize that. You may feel like it's a win to pay the bills for the month without fighting in front of the kids. And now you're, you're telling me that my, my marriage relationship is to conform me to the image of Christ and to display the glory of God. I, I, I can't do it. But I need, I need, to, I need you to remember... First of all, that, that our sins and shortcomings never excuse us for, from answering the call of God in our lives. Nor does it excuse us in our marriages. We are legit called to this. No matter how, false, how short we fall of this, we are still called to do it. And second, these lofty callings are not designed to discourage us but they are designed to show us how much we need the grace of God in our lives. When we hear the high call of God in Christ, in any way, maybe especially in marriage, and realize that we fall short, we don't throw up our hands and quit. That's, that's not, that is not the preserving grace of God in our lives. That is not the work of the Spirit in our lives. When we realize we fall short, we don't throw up our hands and quit. No, we go to our knees and plead with God for mercy and grace. For the mercy and grace He has provided for us in Christ. After all, as this text has told us, Christ loves us. He died for us to sanctify us. He cleanses us by the washing of water with the word so he might present us in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we may be holy and without blemish. He nourishes us and cherishes us because we are members of his own body. So look to him. Cling to him. Submit to him and hope in him. He is our only hope in life and death. Let's pray. Thank you, God. First of all, thank you so much for the gift of marriage that you have given us. Even, even though sometimes it feels difficult, it feels hard, and it feels like we fail, we recognize the gift of grace that it is in our lives. And we don't diminish that, Lord, 
I also would say, pray, Lord, that you would help us in our shortcomings. Lord, we, we apply this text immediately. Lord, because we feel like we fall short. And so we don't give up, Lord. But we look to you. We hope in you. You love us and nourish us and cherish us and sanctify us. And so we look to you for that grace in our lives so that we can be better husbands, so we can be better wives. For those that may be single, Lord God, that, that they can look ahead and, and be preparing to be better husbands and better wives. Christ, we thank you so much for this, the supreme example of love and sacrifice that you have demonstrated for us. And we pray that, that it would be known and seen in our lives in some way and in an ever-increasing way. And we can only do that by the power of your Spirit as, it, as he teaches us to walk in newness of life. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.